Have you ever quit something that you regretted? Uh, looking back, you wished maybe you would have held on a little bit longer, tried one more time to just see if you could make it work. Have you ever quit early and been sad that you did? Today's sermon is titled, Finish the Race. Finish the Race. And we'll be in Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2, verses 12 through 17. Revelation 2.12 reads, And to the angel of the church in Pergamos write, These things, says he who has the sharp two-edged sword. So, like Ephesus and Smyrna that we've already looked at, uh, Pergamos was a very well-known city in ancient times. It had a library that boasted of over 200,000 volumes. It had many ornate temples to Greek gods. And it was a significant city in the emperor worship, in fact, one of the previous emperors, uh, the Roman emperor Augustus, his temple had been built there, and there was a large uh, cult following uh, of emperor worship that was centered there in Pergamos. Uh, to the church of Ephesus, Jesus was the one that holds the seven stars in his hand and that walked in the midst of the golden lampstand. And then we saw to the church at uh, Smyrna, Jesus was the first and the last, the one who was dead and came to life. That's Revelation 2.9. Then here in Revelation 2.12, Jesus describes himself as the one who has the sharp two-edged sword. He's been described earlier in Revelation 1.16 uh, as the one with the sharp two-edged sword proceeding from his mouth. That's at the beginning of the book of Revelation. We'll see at the end of the book of Revelation, whenever we get there, in Revelation chapter 19, as he returns on the white horse, and he is described as defeating his enemies. He's defeating them with a sharp sword that proceeds from his mouth. And so here, Jesus describes himself to the church at Pergamos as the one that has a sharp two-edged sword. The sword was a symbol of Roman authority. They had the power of the sword throughout their empire and over the nations that they had conquered. The word that is used here that we translate as sword in Revelation 2.12 speaks of a very large, a long, a very broad sword, a big sword. Usually when you find the word of God referred to as a sword in the Bible and other passages like Ephesians six. Or Hebrews 4, the Greek word that we translate there as sword is actually referring to a small, very sharp, dagger-like sword. And so it is a different word that is being referenced here or that is being used here in Revelation, referring to Christ having this large sword that is proceeding out of his mouth. And again, we have to understand the symbolism of the book of Revelation. I told you when we covered Revelation 1.16 that if we took that description of Jesus literally, he'd be a very grotesque figure. And so there's something uh, that this sword coming forth from his mouth is communicating to us. And I think as we look through this passage today, we'll see that one of the things Jesus is saying specifically to the church at Pergamos is this. He's saying, yes, it seems like Rome bears the sword. Yes, it seems like Rome has the power over your life even. But Jesus is reminding him, 
them that he is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, that all authority ultimately belongs to him. It's his. And he could execute his judgment and his will at any moment. And Jesus, rather than Rome, is the one that we should fear. Revelation chapter 2, verse 13, the next verse reads, I know your works and where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. How'd you like that to be the name of your city, where Satan's throne is? And you hold fast to my name and did not deny my faith. Look at this. Even in the days in which Antipas, which was my faithful martyr. Remember, Jesus had just described himself as the one with the sword. Now he's talking about a faithful martyr who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Now, if you look at each of the churches that Jesus addresses in Revelations 2 and 3, he begins the letter pretty much the same. He's saying, I, Jesus, and he describes himself in a specific way to that church. Then he says, I know your works. But here in Pergamos, he goes on to say, not only do I know your works, but I know where you dwell. And I know that you're being faithful in the midst of a city that could be described as where Satan dwells. In fact, you're being faithful unto death in a city that is known as Satan's throne. Several commentators or commentators offer several suggestions as to what it means to call Pergamos Satan's throne. One is simply that as it was the center of worship for the emperor, and especially Augustus's temple there, and then Domitian, who would have been the emperor at this time, requiring people, demanding to be worshipped as a living god, it would have been very easy, and we'll see later on that Rome is associated with Babylon, so it would have been very easy to see this city that was the seat of emperor worship, because here's the deal. What did the emperor worship involve? The emperor wanted you to kneel and to say, Caesar is Lord. He wanted you to kneel and to worship him. He wanted you to declare that he was the Lord of your life. And so for a Christian to say, no, Jesus is Lord, put them in opposition to Rome. And so some think that where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells is because it was the seat of this emperor worship, especially the temple of Augustus. But another option has to do with the Greek god, Asipolis. And there were people that traveled all over from the ancient world to visit the city of Pergamos because there was a healing cult. The god, the Greek god, Asiphilus, they believed was a healer. And so the symbol of him, guess what it was? You'll know this. It was a staff with a serpent wrapped around it. That goes all the way back to those times. At least we know that. In ancient times they had that symbol and that is still the symbol of medicine in our day. But we know as believers that that symbol of a serpent on a staff goes back far further than what was going on in the city of Pergamos. In, they, in Numbers chapter 21, the children of Israel had left Egypt. They had been delivered from bondage. But then they went into the wilderness and they just continually complained. We don't have the food we think we should have. We don't have the water we think we should have. We don't like the leadership that we have. They were complaining, complaining, complaining. And so God sent fiery serpents among them. And God had these venomous snakes that were biting the people, and they were dying. And the people repented of their complaining. They went to Moses. They said, call out to God for us. We're sorry for what we've done. 
And God gave Moses something to do for the people as a way for them to demonstrate their repentance and their faith in him is that he put the image of a bronze serpent on a staff and set it up in the camp. And whoever would look to the serpent on the staff would be healed. Now, was there any power in that serpent on a staff? Was there anything special about that? Was there some magic potion that had been poured over it that gave them healing powers? No, it was God saying this. It was God saying, look, I'm in charge. And if I tell you to look at a serpent on a staff to be healed, then that's what you need to do to be healed. And that was the point of it. Now, some thousand years later, Jesus meeting with Nicodemus by night. And he says what? As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so whoever looks at the Son of Man, the Son of Man must be lifted up, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But going back to Revelation, what we find is that the Christians in this community, they're living in this city, and man, they are just at odds with everybody, not because they're wanting to be, but because of their faithfulness to Jesus, they're at odds with Rome because they won't say Caesar is Lord. They're at odds with the Greek culture there because they're not going to bow down to this Greek God. They're going to go to the Lord who is their healer. And, and so what they find is that they're trying to live for Christ in the midst of an environment, in the midst of a culture where it doesn't really matter which direction they go, there are going to be people that are opposing them, even to the point look look again at revelation 2 13 look at this even the point of martyrdom i know your works and where you dwell where satan's throne is and you hold fast to my name and you did not deny my faith even the days in which antipas was my faithful martyr was killed among you where satan dwells so they had held fast to the point of death and we don't know who antipas is but we know that jesus found him faithful now that's a good testimony right You'd say, if you just stop there, you'd say the church at Pergamos has a really good testimony. They are holding fast to Jesus. They've not caved in to the culture. In fact, they've had a martyr. They've been faithful. They've been commended by Jesus. But when you read verses 14, 15, and 16, it's actually kind of shocking following verse 13. It, it, Jesus' tone changes. Look at verse 14. But I have a few things against you. Uh-oh. Uh... -oh. uh other churches, he said, I have something against you. Here he's saying, I have a few things. It's more than one. I have a few things against you because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Thus you also have those who hold the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which things I hate. Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. So they were doing a lot of good things. But then Jesus says, but we have some other things that we still need to handle. At the beginning of verse 14, note, it says, I have a few things against you. So what did Jesus have against them? Well, they were holding to those that taught the, the doctrine of the Nicolaitans and Balaam. Now, we've already seen with the church at Ephesus, if you remember, they actually withstood those who had the, the teachings of the Nicolaitans. The Nicolaitans tried to infiltrate the church at Ephesus, and they withstood them, and Jesus commends the church at Ephesus for that. 
But the Nicolaitans, they went on and they found inroads to the church of Pergamos. And we don't know exactly what this teaching was. There are people that conjecture what it was, but we don't know. We just know it was false doctrine. And we know that Jesus is the way, the what? Truth and the life. There's no falsehood in him. And so Jesus hates what is false, hates what is lie. And so he says, I hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans. I hate what they're teaching. I hate that you, my church, have adopted this doctrine into your midst. You see, the church had been faithful in other things, but they had caved in to the culture in other areas. But what about the teaching of Balaam? Look again, verse 14. He says, but I have a few things against you because you have, there are those that hold the doctrine of Balaam who taught block to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. Now, Balaam was at first described as a prophet of old, but the wicked king Balak, who was the king of the Moabites, tried to hire him to curse God's people. So this wicked king Balak, he says, Balaam, I want you to curse God's people. Balaam says, I'm not going to do it. And they have this back and forth over and over again. And then Balaam finally caves in a little bit. And and we see actually in the book of Numbers uh, that he is judged for this. In Numbers 31, he's condemned because basically what he does is while he does not directly curse God's people, he tells Balak their weak spot. He says, okay, here's what you'll do. Give your women to their men in marriage, and it'll be their downfall. Now, why? Because the people of Moab worshipped the false gods of the people in that area. They didn't worship the one true living God. And so when the men of Israel who worshipped the one true living God intermarried, it had nothing to do with interracial marriage. It has nothing to do with that. It had everything to do with the false gods that they were worshipping. And so when the children of Israel married... The women of Moab, guess what? The children of Israel did. They followed the gods of Moab. And their hearts were led away from the one true and the living God. And they were led into all kinds of sexual immorality. And so I don't think that Jesus is talking here in Revelation 2 about a specific teaching of Balaam. But he's talking about a teaching that has captured. It's kind of wooed the church's heart away from the love of God. It's brought them into immorality. It's brought them into a love that is growing cold. It's drawing them away from the worship of the one true and living God. And so the picture that we have of the church at Pergamos is that, man, they were getting a lot of things right. In fact, they had been faithful even unto death in some areas. But they had caved in in other areas. And they had allowed false teachings and false doctrines that came in. And what is the danger of that? The danger of that is that these things, it's all about the heart. The untruth of these teachings were beginning to draw their hearts away from the living God. And that brings us to our first point today. Believers in Jesus Christ must actively fight for the priority of the gospel in our own lives. You must actively fight for the truth of the gospel in your own life. You must actively preach the gospel to yourself daily so that when a lie comes, you'll know it. You know, how do they recognize counterfeit bills? You know this. They study the real thing over and over and over again so that when there is a counterfeit, they know the counterfeit is off. They don't study the counterfeits. They study the truth. 
And so as a believer, man, you better be holding on to the truth of God's Word. I tell you what, one of the problems with our media today is that everybody can have a voice now. And you may say, well, that's not a bad thing. Well, if you don't filter it, it's a bad thing. You see, before when you had to be published to have a voice, there were filters in place to make sure that you weren't just putting out some crazy talk. But now anybody with a smartphone can put out any kind of garbage that they want. And a lot of people like to cloak garbage in religion. And if you want to find something crazy to believe, you can find it in about two minutes on a smartphone. And so you better be staying grounded in the gospel and actively fighting for the truth in your own life. Now, I think there are at least two ways where it's crept into the church that we don't necessarily notice it, and we sure don't like to admit it. And I think those two ways are materialism and self-promotion. Materialism and self-promotion. Materialism is this. Actually, let me, let me back up. The church at Smyrna we saw... They had held on to the gospel to the extent of abject poverty, but they wanted the gospel to go forth above everything. We, I believe, are in danger. We have accepted a doctrine. We have added to the gospel this understanding that God so wants me to be blessed that, you know, I just need to take care of myself first, make sure that my needs are met, have what I want, and then... I'll see what I have left over that I can serve God with, that I can give to God, that I can do for others with. That's antithetical to the gospel. The gospel is that whoever wants to seek their life, to save their life, is going to lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. But materialism says, no, you need to gain all the accoutrements and the comforts of this life. You need to make sure that you have your little kingdom in order. And then once you're comfortable, then look around and see what you can do for other people. And that is a false teaching, I believe, that has crept in and has caused a lot of the power to just be sucked out of the church. The early church was powerful because they held on to the gospel. I think the other thing is the self-deception Self-promotion, excuse me, and, and that is we want to make sure that our agenda and who we are and our way is promoted above everything else. You know, uh, Katie's dad had three brothers, so there were four boys that grew up, and they all were very successful businessmen. They all were used to being boss, okay? They were used to telling other people what to do. And I remember one time, and they were good at it. I remember one time that I was just trying to build a fire and set up a grate to cook hot dogs. We were all together as a family, just trying to cook hot dogs, something simple, right? I'm like, here we go. I'm just going to do this. I'm going to just take care of this for everybody, serve the family. Before I knew it, I had four alpha males with four different opinions on how to cook hot dogs around me fighting for who was going to get the tongs. No, you need to leave it on one, song, long, on one side as long as you can and then flip it over. Just cook it on two sides. No, you need to keep turning it. No. Now, look, I recognized a losing battle when I was in the middle of it. 
And so I just kind of set the tongs down and slowly slipped out and realized at some point we were going to eat hot dogs. But I was going to leave them to hash out the finer details of the philosophy of hot dog cookery. Now, it is good when leaders lead. Leaders are supposed to lead. It is bad when we have an idea that my way is the only right way, and if you don't get out of my way, I'm going to mow you down having my way. You see, there's a big difference between the two. And I think that we live in a world right now where the lie of materialism, you need to get your own first, and then whatever's left, then that's a power drain on the gospel. It's a false teaching. It's opposite of the gospel. And you combine that with the disease of me, myself, and I that's all about you need to market yourself and promote yourself and put yourself out there and put all your strengths and hide all your weaknesses and people better fall in line or they're going to endure your wrath. Jesus knows nothing of that. In fact, the word of God says that he abhors the proud but gives grace to the what? The humble. And so I think that there are other things like that that we could look at in our lives and in the church. But again, my point is that we need to actively fight for the truth of the gospel. To say, look, this is the gospel message. And I preach this every week, so I'm not rehashing the gospel message. But we need to fight for this is the truth. This is the way that God's called me to live. And I'm going to be diligent about actively fighting against untruth and the things that would come in my life that would lead me astray from that but let's continue on verse 16 i want to read this again what did jesus want them to do about it it's one thing to recognize a problem it's the second thing to know what to do about it verse 16 he says repent or else i will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth so it wasn't everybody in the church that was doing this but some of them were And he's saying, look, you need to repent of this or else I'll come and I'll fight against you. That's serious talk. I mean, that that is a come to Jesus conversation. He's saying, look, get this straightened out or I'm going to show up. And when Jesus says he's going to show up with a sword coming out of his mouth, you better take care of some stuff, right? You better listen. What does it mean to repent, though? It's like if I'm driving down a one-way street and I look up and I see a semi-truck coming my way and I look over and see a sign and realize I'm going the wrong way. In that moment, I have a choice. I either repent, I either have a change of mind that leads to a change of direction or splat, right? I have to realize that I am on the wrong path and there is a change that needs to take place. Now, do any of us have the power and our own strength to make those kind of changes? No. That's why God has given us His Spirit. The reason that God can command a child of God to look like the Son of God, in other words, to behave differently, is because He's given us the Spirit of God. And because we have the Spirit, God can look at you and say, Child, you better turn it around. Because he's already given you the power to do it. And so he says, repent or else I will come to you quickly and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. That brings us to point number two. Believers in Jesus Christ must actively fight against the pride of life in our own lives. 
We must actively fight for the truth of the gospel in our own lives, but we must actively fight against the pride of life in our own lives. In our own lives, that's key. Not to be running around telling everybody else where they're wrong. You got enough problems dealing with yourself, so just stick on that, okay? And God has called us to be aware of the pride of life. Why? Why do we actively fight against it? Because it's always trying to rear its ugly head. I I heard a pastor one time that he said this in a really weird way. I thought, what in the world? Why did he say it like that? But the more I listened, it made more sense. He said that in our relationships and in our marriages and really just in the way that we go about life, we should always be fighting for the bottom. In other words, the bottom place. From top to bottom, he says you should always be fighting for the bottom. And what he's meaning is you're never going to make the wrong choice when you choose humility, when you choose to be the one that's humble, that serves, that takes the place of a servant. But when we're constantly asserting our own rights, and we're allowing the pride of life to rear its ugly head, then, well, we're on the wrong path. And so Jesus says, repent, turn from it. It's only the pride of life that keeps us from that. And the church of Pergamos had been doing great in a lot of ways, but, man, when Jesus is saying, you better repent or I'm going to show up with a sword in my mouth and judge you, there's some stuff you need to handle. Here's the problem, I think, with the pride of life where it's so self-deceptive. I think, like the church at Pergamos, we can think that when we're doing good things for God, it gives us a cheat day in other areas. Have you ever tried to, like, be really healthy in a diet? Maybe you've eaten really good all week, and then the weekend hits, and that's just all out the window, and you just eat garbage all week long, weekend long. Or maybe, you know, you're really watching your spending for a month, and then you come into the month and you've done well, but you just end up blowing that extra money on all kinds of foolish stuff. There's something in human nature, there's something about our fallen human nature that thinks, because I have done good in this area, I deserve, I deserve a little something over here. That's just part of our fallen human nature. And the church at Pergamos, they're like, you know, we've been doing good over here, Jesus, so maybe it's okay if we cave into the church, the culture over here. And Jesus says, no, it's not. No, it's not. Is Jesus being legalistic? No. But he's called us to holiness. Why, why can't something like eating right be simply a matter of trying to take care of your body, which is the temple of God's Holy Spirit? Why can't uh, managing your finances be something as simple as being a good steward? Why, why do we have to, I'm just using these examples, why do we have to take the good that we do and think that that has then almost given us like a bonus ticket to go do wrong? I mean, am I the only person here like that? I guess I'm alone. But he's saying, look, it's not about legalism, but it is about a relationship with me. And just because you're doing great in one area does not give you a license to sin in another. But let's continue on. Verse 17 reads, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone on 
on it, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. This is part of the uh, imagery in Revelation that you read, and you're like, I don't know how that relates to my life. Talking about Jesus giving me some hidden manna and a white stone, how's that supposed to help me today? Well, I want you to understand how that helps you today. In Revelation 2 through 3, Jesus Jesus not only begins his message to each church with something personal, but he closes it with a personal promise to those who overcome. And so to the church at Pergamos, he's saying, look, to those who repent and to overcome, I'm going to give you this hidden manna and a, a white stone with a new name written on it. Now, now why, why that? What is he talking about here? Well, we know, let's, let's discuss the hidden manna first. We know in Exodus 16, when they had come out of Egypt, that they, um, again, complained. They didn't have bread, so God sent what? Manna. And that manna was their life. I mean, it was their food. And it was so strange to them. Manna in Hebrew actually means what? So it was like they walked out of their tents. They saw bread on the ground went, what? And Jesus and God was like, yeah, that's what you call it. What? I just put what out there for you. And, and every morning they'd walk out and go, what? Again. And there was the manna over and over. They did that for 40 years. What? And they walked out. For 40 years, God had what waiting on them as a reminder that he was going to provide for them over and over again. But the manna was not simply for them then. It was to point to Jesus. Because in John 6, what did Jesus say? As God gave your descendants, the children of Abraham, the manna in the wilderness, so I am the bread of life that whoever believes in me shall live forevermore. And so when he's talking about a hidden manna, I think that's simply a reference to the reality that we'll experience in the life of Jesus when it's fully unveiled. Jesus told a lot of parables about the kingdom of God and how the kingdom was hidden and how the kingdom of God was like a, a treasure hidden in a field that when somebody saw it, they went and sold everything that they had to go buy the field and possess their treasure. And I think that what Jesus is telling us now is to those who overcome, you're going to receive the hidden manna. You're going to receive the fullness of the kingdom of God, the fullness of life, the fullness of all that Jesus is, is awaiting those that overcome. I tell you what, that's something to look forward to, isn't it? I mean, that's something to get a little excited about. But what about the white stone with the name written on it that no one knows except him who receives it? Well, in the Bible, white is often used as a symbol of purity. God says, I'll make, though your garments will, were red like crimson, I will make you white as snow, right? And so white's a symbol of purity. But what's the deal with a name? Well, we also know in Scripture that a new name has to do with newness, even salvation. Jacob was called a surplanter. That's his name, surplanter, deceiver. But then God changed his name to Israel, which means either prince of God or one who strives with God because he had wrestled with the angel. What about Saul? When he encountered Jesus, was changed to what? Paul. Even in the book of Isaiah, there are multiple passages. Isaiah 56 and 62, God promises that he's going to give the Gentiles, those who would have been the outsiders, a new name and that they would dwell in his house. And so commentators talk a lot about what this new name means. Some think that being given a white stone with a new name on it is a symbol of something that happened or it's a reference to something that happened in their courts in ancient times. If you went to court 
and you were declared innocent, you were cleared of your charges, you were actually given a white stone that was a symbol of your innocence. So there could be a historical reference there to that. But I think it goes much deeper than that. Where else in the Bible do you see names written on stones? If you go all the way back to the book of Exodus, when God was giving the children of Israel the requirements for how to worship him, one of the things that God gave was the priestly garments. He said, here's how the priests are to dress, and then he said, and here's how the high priest is to dress. And the high priest had a breastplate. And you know what was on the breastplate? Twelve stones. Four, uh, in three, uh, three, uh, four rows with three in each row. So four rows down with three in each row. Twelve stones. And they had the names of each of the children of Israel. One name for each stone. And the stones were of different. One of the stones was a diamond. Um, they had these beautiful stones that were on the priest's breastplate. And so what happened was, as the priest walked into the, the high priest, as he walked into the presence of God, it was a reminder before God that he bore the people, and it was a reminder to the priest that he was bearing the people before God. And so I think what Jesus is promising the church at Pergamos is, look, yeah, you're holding fast to me, but there's some areas where you've denied me. Get that straight. Repent of that in my power and my strength. And here's the thing for us today, and I'm about to bring it to my third and final point. Get a fresh vision of where you're headed. Realize that where you're headed, <laughs> your treasure is not in this world. That where you're headed is my presence. You are headed to receiving the hidden manna, which is life eternal. You are headed to receiving a new name. You are going to become, in other words, receiving a new name with this white stone is you're going to become a new creation that is far beyond what you can understand now. And so Jesus is saying, look, get focused on what is to come and repent of these lesser things. And that brings us to our third and final point today. Believers in Jesus Christ must actively fight for our promised reward. Must actively fight for our promised reward. Look, your spiritual condition is no one else's fault, nor no one else's responsibility. It's on you. Now, children, are your parents to be teaching you in the ways of the Lord? So there's, is there a responsibility there? Yes. But if you know the Lord, you are responsible for growing in Him. If you are bitter and angry at God, you will stay that way as long as you keep blaming other people and God. But when you will come to understand who He is and His love and His grace and be changed by Him, then you'll truly begin to live. But I want you to understand that you need to fight for your own reward. God is saying, look, I have this for you, my child. It's yours, and you need to strive, and you need to overcome, and you need to persevere. And it doesn't matter what other people have done for you or haven't done for you. It's the reward that you are to strive for. And it's yours in Jesus. It's promised to you. But isn't that great news? You know, let me explain it this way as I bring it to a close. It's great to have goals, right? Let's say that 
you know, if you could remove limits of age or physical ailments or your physical makeup, whatever it is, and you could just pick whatever goal. Let's say you wanted to be the fastest 100-meter runner in the world, okay? And your goal is, I want to run 100 uh, meters faster than anybody else in the entire world, or 100 yards. So what do you do? What do you do to accomplish that goal? Well, you eat a certain way, right? You get certain equipment. You live a disciplined life. You get a coach. You show up. You suit up. You practice. What happens is because of this massive goal that you have, the rest of your life becomes wrapped around that goal, right? I think we all know that. We all have things in our life that other things just become wrapped around. I think what Jesus is telling the church at Pergamos and the message for us today, it's, it's not rocket science. I mean, we, we kind of sang about this in our, our last song in Christ Alone. It's that Jesus is saying, you need to see me as that all-consuming goal that you're working towards. And when you see me as your reward and you see the greatness of my glory and the brilliance of who I am and all that I have in store for you, it's not going to be hard for you to repent of the lesser things of this world because you're working towards your reward. And Jesus said to those who overcome, man, it's waiting for you. And so this morning, bringing it to a close, look, <laughs> it may be that some of you need to begin that race. You've been running, but you're running in the wrong direction. And it's time for you to realize this is not the direction my life needs to go anymore. And to look to Jesus and to believe that God has sent his son who has died for you, who has risen from the grave, who is offering the forgiveness of sins and the gift of everlasting life to whoever believes. It's time for you to get in the right race, running the right direction, to turn from your way, to look to Jesus, to say, I believe, and let God do what he says he'll do, and that's save you. But to many of you, you're already on that race, you're running it. But man, isn't it easy in this world to lose sight of the reward? Isn't it easy to get caught up in materialism? Isn't it easy to get caught in self-promotion? Isn't it easy to get caught up in all the things that we think we need? And Jesus is saying, quit it. Get back, get focused on me. Hold fast till the end. Be an overcomer. And you will receive a reward that is far greater than you can even understand in this moment. That's something to be excited about, I think. Would you please stand with me? As we bring the sermon to a close, we're going to have a song of response. And this is also an opportunity to prepare our hearts for receiving the Lord's Supper. We will move quickly through the Lord's Supper. We won't be here much longer this morning. Uh, But I want to give you a chance to respond. Maybe you're here and you've never put your faith in Christ. Today's your day. Today is your day to turn from your way, to look to Jesus, to experience the life he has in you. I'll be down front. I would love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you about putting your faith in Christ. Maybe some of you, uh, you realize it's just time for us to make this our church home. Or maybe you just have something you would like special prayer about before you go into this next week. Be down front. We're going to sing a song of response. That's us responding to the word of God. And you just obey God as he leads, and then I'll be back up to lead us through the Lord's Supper, and then we'll dismiss. I'm going to pray, and as we sing, you come. Lord Jesus, we love you, and we thank you that you do 
have a reward for us, that you do tell us about it, that you put it out there, that you say, look, it's not just about doing the right thing and hoping it all works out. It's about working towards a reward, that promised hope that we have in you. And I thank you for that. I pray that we could get a fresh glimpse of that, some just fresh excitement about that. We have a heavenly reward. Let us get excited about that today. And I thank you that you have given us yourself. We have you. We have you now. And I pray, Lord, that if there's one that does not know you, that they would turn from their way and believe upon you and be saved this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.